Hi, my name's Tom Jennings, and this is the 24 Frames Cast. Um, today's episode is going to be on John Borman's Point Blank. And before I begin, I want to preface it with two things. The first is that I will be spoiling the film throughout, so if you haven't seen it, you might want to watch it before before you listen to this. The second is that there is actually a commentary on the disc that I have between John Borman and Steven Sodenberg. Now, I've decided not to actually listen to the commentary because, um, much like a good magic trick, I don't really want to know kind of uh, what the film is actually about. It's a bit like when uh, Penn and Teller kind of do a magic trick and then uh, show you how it was done. So I've decided to remain ignorant, so I do apologise if I say anything over the course of the episode, which is completely wrong if you have listened to the commentary. But anyway, I'm going to get straight on with it now, and this is a close-up episode on John Borman's Point Blank. Hope you enjoy it. John Borman is a director who you probably won't see on many people's top 10 favourite filmmakers list, but he is one who I think has quite an interesting filmography. There's some stone cold classics like Deliverance, Point Blank obviously, um, Hell in the Pacific which is a film that I particularly really enjoy, and uh, some cult classics in there as well, certainly Excalibur is one of the best fantasy films that I've ever seen and one that I kind of particularly enjoy. For the kind of the cult value I'm a big fan of Sardos which if you haven't actually seen the film you will know an image from it which is that of Sean Connery with a ponytail and orange loincloth. Um, The film is as balmy as that image but um, I think it has a kind of a a certain charm to it and I've certainly gone back and watched it a few times on DVD. It does have a very very interesting commentary with Borman in it actually which he kind of um, ridicules his own work and it's quite worth a listen. There's of course um, a few turkeys namely The Exorcist 2. I would recommend watching the trailer for that film and I think you'll probably get the idea that it's absolutely god-awful. There's some underrated films too. Uh, the General starring Brendan Gleeson is a brilliant um, gangster film um, set in Ireland. It was actually remade by um, Kevin Spacey into one of his retirement fund films called Ordinary Decent Criminal, which I haven't seen and probably will never bother watching either. And there's also uh, quite a lot of films which I've not actually seen and heard good things about. The Tailor of Panama, Hope and Glory, which I think I saw when I was about six or seven and I can't really kind of recall what it was about, but I wouldn't mind going back to it because I seem to remember quite enjoying it at the time. It's safe to say he hasn't had um, a massive box office success but certainly I think there is a lot there to enjoy and certainly a filmmaker who I will uh, over the coming months be having a look at in more detail. The reason why I've decided to talk about Point Blank today and I have to be kind of somewhat self-indulgent here when I kind of go on from this tangent. Next year I will be making my first film and 
I'm currently in the kind of stage of pre-production on it at the moment and as an exercise I have decided in recent months to revisit some of the films which I consider to be the best directed, not necessarily the best films but ones which directorially have had a massive impact on me over the years. Point Blank was one of those. Now it is an incredibly stylistic film and I kind of think style has become a dirty word in film criticism. We are the first to complain when there's too much of it and we're also complain when there is a lack of it. Someone like Michael Bay is a very stylistic director however his style is nothing more than visual titillation. That means you there is absolutely nothing in one of his images to enjoy other than the image itself whether that be a robot standing on top of a mountain with the camera swirling around it or a low angle shot of Megan Fox's ass and it is of course an incredibly superficial style of direction that becomes very boring very quickly don't get me wrong I will openly admit that I enjoy the Transformers films but in a hundred years I doubt very much people will still be talking about them in the same way they do something like Lawrence of Arabia. When we see something that's overly stylistic we can at first kind of dismiss it. I've recently been watching the Spartacus Blood and Sand series. For anyone who's actually seen it I will be talking about it on the next episode. It is a fairly ridiculous series and its style is completely in keeping with what the filmmakers are trying to achieve. You are supposed to cheer and applaud when you see a CGI spurt of blood coming off some someone's severed arm likes to undercrank and overcrank the image and it is perfectly in keeping with what you are supposed to get out of watching the series for me it works anyway I know some people I've read in several magazines and um, blogs etc who have completely criticized this but I actually think it's style being employed to serve a very clear purpose one of the things that attracted me to Point Blank and one of the reasons why I've gone back to it in preparation for before I make my own film and that is that every aspect of it from the acting style to the screenplay to the lighting to the composition of shots says something about the story and character and is open for interpretation and further investigation it's probably one of the reasons why like I said I don't really want to listen to the commentary because I, I, I want to kind of enjoy discovering more about it in the years to come Based on the novel The Hunter by Donald E. Westlake, Point Blank is very much a star vehicle and the star being Lee Marvin. Now, Marvin at the time was really kind of at the pinnacle of his career. He had won an Oscar um, for Cat Palau in 1965 and was kind of generally considered to be one of the other kind of Hollywood hard men. He had the star power and clout to make whatever he wanted and decided to do this rather kind of abstract gritty revenge thriller point blank now he brought on Borman um, who had only made Catch Us If You Can before which was kind of like a um, kind of a fairly jaunty film about the band of Dave Clark Five and Marvin brought him on specifically because he wanted the film to look unlike anything that was coming out at the time and in order to achieve this Marvin was incredibly protective of Borman he did not let the studio interfere or hurry him up at all and he even actually used to feign hangovers so that Borman would have extra time to set up shots the result is of course an incredibly unique film now I believe that everything you need to kind of know about the film style and the story is contained within the film's opening sequence we actually th see three different events occurring all taking place in a non-linear narrative style the first is that Walker obviously played by Lee Marvin best friend Mal played by John Vernon who you may recognize as the mayor from Dirty Harry and Walker's wife Lynn are setting up to rob 
a money exchange. Now, this exchange is taking place in what looks like an old prison, which I will get to in a bit. We then cut to Mao begging Walker for help at some kind of what looks like a reunion in a particularly surreal scene with Mao lying on top of Walker, kind of pleading with him to come to his assistance. We don't really know, um, well, I suppose we assume it is to help him with this um, robbery. Third scene we see is Lin talking to Walker after the heist, which is botched when Mao actually kills two of the uh, people taking the money. And Walker is sat in one of the prison cells and wife Lin talks to him before Mao comes in and repeatedly shoots him double-crossing him. Mao and Lin walk out, leaving Walker lying in the cell, badly wounded, just staggering off the bed. As the opening credits begin, we see Walker rise up from the cell and stagger out of the prison, and it's revealed that the prison is in fact Alcatraz. Alcatraz is obviously a very iconic prison for a reason I will get to in just a little bit. But what we see during this opening sequence is a variety of different directorial styles that really kind of make it stand out. There's things like the freeze frame, which we've seen it so many times before now, but it was still a relatively new technique at the time, a very kind of noticeable one for contemporary audiences, I would imagine. The film's dialogue is very short and very snappy. The scene with Walker and Mao lying on the floor seems to have absolutely no context as to how they got there and why people around them don't seem to notice that they're actually lying on the floor. And of course, you have the setup for the classic revenge thriller, and that is the double cross both financially and emotionally, with Lin allowing Mao to shoot Walker. Going back to this scene taking place on Alcatraz, obviously it's an incredibly iconic and famous prison, possibly the most famous in the world, but it also had something else it was incredibly famous for. The last shot of the opening sequence is Walker lying in the water bobbing up and down. Now I've actually been to Alcatraz and the thing the tour guides always tell you is that although people did escape, none of them survived. The people that did try and escape were all able-bodied, unlike Walker who has been repeatedly shot. So next time we see Walker, he's on a boat going round Alcatraz, apparently surviving the escape attempt with a character called Yost who will appear sporadically throughout the film. When we listen to the dialogue between the two, it is clear all Walker is interested in is retrieving his money. Now we might assume this is in fact some kind of a lie or some kind of bravado on the part of the character not wanting to kind of belie the fact he's incredibly hurt by what Lin has done to him. And as we will see throughout the film, he repeatedly says all he is interested in is getting his money back. And as I said, I will be ruining the film because come the final moments of it, he does get the opportunity to get his money back and doesn't actually take it. So what can possibly all this mean, having escaped from Alcatraz. Well, if you listen to the tour guide who's talking in the background, I think you get an idea of where I might be heading. I'm just going to play the clip. Get off the island. They have never been heard of since. How did you make it, Walker? 
1946, the historic Battle of Alcatraz took place. Two convicts had managed to overpower their guards and took over the main cell block, releasing those prisoners still in their cells. They had nine hostages. During the two days of siege, the Coast Guard, Using the wreck. prison launch, and the San Francisco police boat for a drop. The and a detachment Buzz. of Marines guarded the prisoners still in the I'm used. yard. Are you making a charge? No, no, no. The three leaders of the I want something else. The police riddled with rifle and shotgun fire. After the 48-hour break, two officers and three prisoners were dead. I, uh, I want the organization. Excuse me. The last escaped attempt from Alcatraz. Your friend Reese? All the prisoners taken off the island. He's in the big time now. Come on, Suits. Penthouses. He bought his way back in. With the money he stole from you. None will ever heard from again. And all indications point to their being swept through the tide, out through the Golden Gate to a watery grave. Alcatraz, often called the Rock, was actually 93,000, wasn't it? 93. 93. You want Reese? And I want the organization. You understand? I'm going to help you. And you're going to help me. That's your wife's address in Los Angeles. Reese lives there, too. In 1854, the United States Army began to fortify Alcatraz. Now, of course, the interpretation is that Walker has in fact died and that the film is in a part some kind of deathbed fantasy that's playing out. When I was at Alcatraz and the tour guide was talking about the failed escape attempts, my dad did pose a rather interesting question to the, uh, to the guide, which was, why if you went to all the trouble of escaping from a prison like that, would you then walk into the local newspaper or in a few years time actually come out and say that you did it because of course what would actually happen would you'd probably be sent back to somewhere far worse with a slightly longer sentence it would be completely ridiculous however when you kind of hear about the kind of the geography of the environment there are extremely strong currents and a variety of reasons why people were very unlikely would have made it to the other side and i think although there is a degree perhaps of ambiguity that walker might have survived. I think it is pretty clear by the way in which the film unfolds he is in fact actually dead. Of course this being a studio film, it was produced by MGM, it obviously has on paper anyway a very A to B plot. Now how that unfolds is such we then see Walker go straight after this scene to Lynn who is now a drug addict and possibly an alcoholic I even think. She dies before 25 minutes into the film and therefore, we would expect perhaps to have this kind of confrontation at the end. And again, I go back to this idea that all Walker wants is his money back. Lynn then dies from what we assume is a drugs overdose. This takes Walker to a sleazy used car salesman called Stegman, who is part of a mysterious organisation that Mao is trying to buy his way into. He beats up Stegman. He eventually garners some more information out of him before 
he hooks up with Chris, played by Angie Dickinson, who is Lynn's sister. Through Chris, we find out that she is in fact actually um, seeing Mal. Walker goes to Mal's apartment, kills him. Again, this is way before the film's climax. So with Lynn and Mal out the way, again I go back to the idea of where is the emotion behind this journey of revenge and as Walker keeps attesting all he wants is his money back we're introduced to a, car a character called Carter who is I think he's some kind of like low-level politician and he's also very much part of this mysterious organization Carter tries to have Walker killed it backfires and he ends up getting killed himself before Walker ends up at the sprawling house of a character called Brewster who is another person high up in the organization again all Walker wants is his money. The film works towards its climax in which Yost, who we see at the beginning of the film on the boat, is in fact a member of the organisation using Walker to try and get rid of all his enemies within it. He offers Walker the money and Walker simply walks away into the shadows. The film ends. Now, I think this kind of style to the film and the way its narrative unfolds very much comes down to the European influences that had inspired Borman during the 60s. When you watch films by directors like Michelangelo Antonioni or Jean-Luc Godard, it's almost as if narrative in them is illusionary. I've talked about it a couple of times in other shows, but La Ventura was a film by Antonioni that when I watched, I was kind of mesmerized by it. And to give you kind of a basic plot summary, a group of kind of young couples go on a boating holiday and end up on a small island off Italy. And one of the girls, suddenly disappears. Now of course at this stage you would say that the goal of the film's narrative is to find out what happens to this girl. That doesn't really occur and likewise in films like Breathless by Godard it kind of works to a climax but there's lots of kind of just seemingly kind of almost random scenes that the film's made up of. It's a kind of style of filmmaking that you either kind of buy into or find it incredibly off-putting. I think that comes down to the fact that we are so used to very clear narrative driven cinema that when we don't quite get that and we do get something a little bit different it can be quite off-putting to some people. I personally don't find it to be much of a distraction and quite like it when we kind of get put, when a filmmaker puts us into a world where we can just enjoy seeing these characters interact and move around all very loosely bound together by quite a slim narrative. Now, going back to this idea that every element of the film says something about the characters and the story, how does John Borman actually achieve this? Well, his director of photography in the film was a chap called Philip Lathrop who employed the scope frame. It feels like in a very expansive film because of the widescreen framing. Now, widescreen at the time, it kind of been employed in the early 50s mainly for financial reasons the idea was to kind of give people something in the cinema that they couldn't find at home and if you watch those early films films like the robe and things like that they're incredibly theatrical and directors didn't know what to do with all the space they didn't know how to cut within scenes without it seeming incredibly confusing for the viewer but once the format of widescreen was exported to the world it kind of came back into american cinema i think with far more flair and distinction and what you see in Point Blank is perfectly composed shots with Marvin almost constantly appearing in a kind of mid-shot or just slightly low angle, often placed to the left of the screen. Now, obviously, the placement of the left, I think, has something to do with the Western ideal that we read from left to right. But what you will often see is vast amounts of space on screen. And what it does, I think, is 
it acts to kind of detach and alienate Marvin from his environment. He is equally dominating in it, yet equally lost within it. In particular, there is a scene where he is walking along an underpass, and it's from when he's actually... Tr it's the scene between um, the boat scene with Yost and when he goes round to Linz. It's a low-angle tracking shot with him with a very determined expression on his face, simply walking, seeming infinitely towards the camera. And what you see is this kind of the clinical lines of the underpass and the perfectly spaced gaps between the lights. And it has a very kind of clinical, almost cold appearance to it. It is shot in colour, but it's not a very kind of colourful film, as it were. It has the appearance, I think, of a very modern, contemporary film for its time. You can tell Borman liked the kind of modern architecture of Los Angeles. We see kind of pristine office blocks with their kind of glass doors and straight lines. For the most part, kind of Walker is wearing a suit. It doesn't seem to kind of take place in that kind of counterculture, hippie environment that would kind of really come and come into fruition in films like Easy Rider the following year. Again, I think this comes back to the kind of the influence of those European films on Borman. They are very cosmopolitan films. I um, Lear Clips, which I watched quite recently, um, one of Antonioni's early sixties films, takes place. Uh, I'm pretty certain it's in Rome, but it's in very modern apartments, very modern buildings. It's contemporary chic although obviously the film kind of looks dated by virtue of the fact it's made in 1966 i think it kind of really feels kind of to kind of remind me of anything else it'd be something like michael mann's heat that has that focus on kind of symmetrical modern environment and the idea of people becoming lost within that environment another directorial trait that i noticed was that we often see characters looking from the inside out and the outside in in particular there is a scene where we see chris standing at some patio doors and we assume that she is on the inside looking out before Walker turns some lights on and we notice that she's actually on the outside waiting to get in. I think it's a very subtle way of showing the disconcerting nature of the situation that the characters are in. It's a very, I think, unsettling film at times and I think this is kind of a very kind of clever way of showing that these people are very detached from the world in which they live. You can tell as well that Borman is looking at Los Angeles through a tourist's eyes. Now, obviously it doesn't kind of cut to the city's more famous landmarks like the Hollywood signs or anything like that, but he in fact chooses some quite interesting architectural elements of the city. I've been to Los Angeles and one thing I was absolutely amazed by were those concrete canals that run throughout the city. Now, I'm sure people who live in Los Angeles might even think they're an eyesore or just don't really notice them, but having never seen anything like that before, I was incredibly drawn to them when I saw them, and Borman is too, during the scene where Carter is shot. You kind of see how huge these constructions are, and how they just simply swallow up the characters within them. Despite all its kind of perfectly composed shots, Borman does at times completely throw this out the window, especially during the film's more kind of psychedelic moments. There's a scene where Walker goes round to Lynn's house, and you really have kind of no idea about how much kind of time has elapsed when he's round there and he will kind of employ slow motion and jump cuts that really kind of I think disorientate the viewer and obviously the character I think it's kind of meant to reflect that kind of inner turmoil that's going on within Walker's head but one aspect of the film that I think does kind of remain fairly consistent throughout is the film's editing style we get just enough information out of a scene before we quickly cut to the next and often we will 
arrive at a scene after something has seemingly happened, especially when the organisation trashed Chris's house, it almost feels like there is another film within Point Blank. I would, I wonder how much um, was left on the editing floor. And I, obviously, I wouldn't like to see some kind of awful kind of producer's cut, which was like two and a half hours. But I'd be interested to know how much was actually filmed and how much it was actually edited down to what we see. It does remind me again of um, Jean-Luc Godard's Breathless, where we suddenly just cut from scenes which seem somewhat in, unrelated to each other, yet kind of work towards the film as a whole. Now, there is another scene where, um, before we get to Stegman, the news car dealer, where Walker apparently goes to Lynn's grave. And again, I, I, I sort of question the uh, validity of the scene in terms of, is it actually occurring? Because we get no idea how long she's been dead for, let alone, did he have actually time to bury her? And you know, did he go and organize her burial? Or did he simply leave her there and let her be found? It's quite bizarre. And I would actually contest again, it, it comes coming back to this notion that he is actually dead. But we do see kind of similar things, especially where he kind of, I think he meets Lynn for the first time, where he seems to be like a uh, working on a fishing boat or something like that. And it's an incredibly bizarre, unsettling little moment where he suddenly stops standing next to her smiling and is then surrounded by other sailors smiling. And I think you could almost read into it that there's going to be some kind of rape occurring, but it doesn't actually play out like that. It's, like I said, very bizarre, very unsettling. Although I've not actually uh, listened to the commentary, I don't think it's um, exactly coincidental that Steven Sodenberg is actually on it. The first time I ever watched The Limey, having seen Point Blank before, I was amazed at how clearly influenced he was. In particular, there's a scene in The Limey where there is a character standing around a pool table. And for anyone who's seen the film, you will know exactly what I'm talking about because it is kind of like a masterclass in kind of condensing both dialogue and time into one scene. The film's dialogue is at times equally surreal. We often see characters talking to another one and the other character simply almost repeating what the other one is saying. I've kind of thought about why that might be and I, I don't know whether it kind of comes back to this idea that this film is a fantasy and it's kind of Bourbon playing with the convention of dialogue. So often dialogue in film is a very, very overrated aspect of it. I remember when I was at university we had to kind of write short films like 10, 15 minutes and invariably people would come in with 10-15 pages of dialogue and our lecturer always used to say you don't need dialogue to tell a story and one of the things when you watch something like a Godard film is that you are kind of always aware I think that you are watching a film they don't kind of strive for this kind of naturalism that you often see and in Point Blank I feel this, these kind of techniques are there to kind of remind you that what you are watching is in fact not reality invariably as well you see characters constantly talking about self-preservation you're very clear as to their motives to what they are doing walker simply wants his money back carter simply wants to survive mal simply wants to be part of the organization i think that's kind of in a way we could almost say there's a kind of a superficiality to them and not much kind of deeper motive behind what they are doing again I actually think this is reflected in the film's kind of acting style all the characters seem incredibly emotionally detached from the world around them. When Chris is informed that Lynn has died, she barely registers the fact that her sister is dead. Obviously something has occurred between them to make her feel like that. Perhaps it's the fact that she's actually gone off with uh, Mal, but she doesn't seem particularly bothered. Likewise, Lee Marvin, who 
is a fantastic actor, you know, by this time he was obviously an Oscar winner. He does not emote at all really during the film, he just looks very blank, very determined. However, I think it's through the kind of little snippets that we see, he is inwardly an incredibly deeply conflicted person who cannot find resolution to what is going on in the film. There's, I think, very subjective edits that suggest he is wounded deeply by Lin's betrayal, especially when um, another one of the more psychedelic sequences when him and Chris are in Brewster's house before Brewster gets there. We see him, I think he's kind of fantasizing about being in bed with Lynn, which then cuts to actually Lynn and Mal being in bed. And very interestingly, when he does go around Lynn's house, the first thing he does is burst into the bedroom and fire his gun several times into the bed. And I think that belies the fact that he does feel the sexual betrayal of what has actually happened to him. Now, he is the one who we see in the flashbacks, and again, I, we don't, I don't necessarily believe 100% that these flashbacks are actually a representation of the reality that occurred. He was the one who allowed Mal back into their life. And is there a sense of his part of the guilt of allowing this to happen and the wounded masculinity of him? Thinking about this in the context of being a star vehicle, think about something like Steve McQueen in Bullet. That film is an audiovisual shrine to that man. In Point Blank, Walker takes a kicking, especially in a scene where he goes to see Chris at a nightclub. The hoods do almost get the better of him, and it seems strange that, especially in the 60s, that kind of macho image and macho culture, that he allows himself to get beaten up on screen like this. He is, I think, a very emotionally vulnerable person who similarly is as repulsed and attracted to women and therefore is always kind of constantly alone and adrift in the world and again going back to that idea of the way in which Walker's framed in the film that kind of clinical clean look to it I think it's indicative of the idea that he is an incredibly tragically solitary figure. I think this kind of characterization also kind of relates to the film's kind of genre that we think it's taking place in. If you were to kind of, I suppose, pigeonhole it, you might say it was almost a noir film. When we think about the kind of noir convention, it is the conflicted, streetwise and smart alpha male. Certainly you could say that Walker is that, but what Point Blank does, it seems to kind of inverse many of the common conventions that we have of the noir film, making it, I suppose, a neo-noir film. For example, the noir film in the traditional sense gives characters a place to hide in the darkness and the shadows. Point Blank takes place for the most part in the glaring sunshine. It is equally as terrifying as having many places to hide in that no one in the film actually has a place to hide. All of Walker's kills are relatively easy. He's able to find people incredibly quickly and they are able to find him also. The idea that the kind of the city is this kind of open book and it's just a question of who gets the other person first, I think is infinitely more terrifying than being able to kind of hide in a kind of underpass or a doorway waiting for your victim to come by. And again, you know, the, the noir film, it's a very kind of, I think in a very American genre, it's definitely something I associate with kind of cinema of the 30s, 40s and 50s and having kind of Borman come in with kind of European sensibilities to kind of shake it up a little bit obviously makes for a very interesting I suppose exercise in genre bending and the notion of genre I think is extended in the way in which we see crime in the film. The organisation that Mal, Carter, Brewster and Yost are part of 
is it's almost corporate crime i suppose what you find is the higher up the organization you go the more legitimate the people seem to get carter like i said i think he's some kind of politician of sorts bruce that kind of travels around in a private jet and a chauffeur driven car and lives in a huge house it is perhaps, I suppose, in a way, kind of a reflection on the fact that something like the banking crisis that's going on at the moment, the more you read about it and the more you hear about it, you learn that the people at the very top were acting in a way which really should result in prison sentence, but hasn't because they have the veneer of big business. They have the lawyers and the financial clout to get away with what they have done in point blank. The organisation is about people getting as rich as they possibly can. It is the essence of true capitalism. These aren't the kind of traditional gangsters that we see with kind of um, flick knives and sawn off shotguns. They're sleek, suited individuals who have a kind of a clinicalness about how they go about their business. Point Blank is a very kind of male dominated film and women do kind of get treated quite harshly in it. I think of a scene in which after Lynn has killed herself and she's lying on the bed with a very short skirt on, the camera can almost see all the way up it. And very much I think she is presented as nothing more as an object. Likewise when Chris goes round to Mal's apartment when she's helping Walker get in there to kill him. She simply sits down and is then undressed in a kind of sickeningly kind of casual way by Mao, who just who basically treats her almost like a prostitute. Yet she does actually go through and sleep with him, um, allowing Walker to come in and, and kill him. When uh, Walker tries to break into Carter's office and he forces his secretary to let him in and he kind of sticks his hand down her front to press a buzzer to let him in and there is a very kind of... I suppose strong sexual connotation to what he does for all its kind of misogyny and um, ambiguity I wouldn't hesitate in recommending Point Blank to someone it genuinely rewards repeat viewing unlike so many of the films that come out today that we kind of watch and kind of almost forget as soon as the credits have finished rolling it is I think open to a great deal of interpretation revision and speculation. I personally think it is a very introspective film on the part of Lee Marvin. Having read a great deal about him, I know that he was deeply scarred by his experiences in World War II. He fought in the Pacific Campaign. And there is um, quite an interesting essay by John Borman on how that affected Marvin throughout his life. And although he wasn't kind of the um, drunken war vet crying in the streets. I mean, he was actually quite a heavy drinker anyway, but he wasn't the kind of guy who would go out and get drunk and then start boohooing and telling anyone he met about how awful it was, but it certainly had a profound effect on him that went through his entire life. And I think Point Blank is in some way one of the most personal films and personal star vehicles that has ever been made. I don't think it necessarily gets the recognition that it deserves. Obviously, as I said before, Steven Sodenberg seems to kind of champion it quite a lot, but I really think it is part of that kind of new wave of films, the Bonnie and Clyde's Easy Rider and the Wild Bunch, and kind of need to be lumped in with those, that kind of signalled the end of old Hollywood and the beginning of the new.
it is extremely hard to get hold of on region 2 I think there is a Spanish import which is very much like the region 1 um, DVD that came out that obviously has this, the uh, Sodenbergs uh, and Borman commentary track on it it's available I think on Amazon for about £7 off a company of Movie Mars and I really kind of implore you to kind of seek it out because it is well worth a watch and as I said is hopefully if I can get anywhere near to point blank in my own film I will be extremely happy and that is going to be it for this episode of the 24 frames cast um, if you want to email me it's 24framescast at gmail.com you can follow me on twitter at 24framescast and don't forget to come over to the new blog at 24framescast.blogspot.com I'll be in contact soon with another episode and many thanks for listening bye